Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. Today, we're here with our first ever repeat guest, uh, other than uh, Roberta, who works with us, so it doesn't count. Uh, but our first external repeat guest, Michelle Ronson. So excited to have you here. You are the founder and CEO of Curiosity Tank, and really excited to talk about UXR productivity hacks today. So thanks for joining us and coming back. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Got JH here, too. Yeah, this is ticking two boxes for me. I've always wanted to have somebody back on as a recurring guest. I thought that'd be fun, so I'm excited we're doing that. And I love hacks and tricks and stuff, so this is this is right in my wheelhouse. Awesome. All right, so let's jump into it. Uh, first of all, like, what is a UXR productivity hack? I know um, there was a time, remember, like, Lifehacker was a big, like, Web 2.0, oh, yeah. 1.0, 1.5, and... You know, everyone was there growth hackers and like hacking, you know, it was like there was the age of the hacking and then there's a little bit of a backlash to that. But um, what is a UXR productivity hack and why is it a good thing? So I interpret them as something that saves you time or brain power, right? A lot of repeatable things come up in our practice and there are repeatable solutions that we can implement to just increase our efficiencies, increase our productivity and reduce that cognitive load. <laughs> Lots of context switching in our industry. So um, things that really help us do our jobs more efficiently. Right, because you need that cognitive capacity for other things, sort of the idea, right? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, don't weigh down with repeated tasks. Do you have Do you have like a favorite one that comes to mind immediately when we talk about this topic? You know, I, there are so many favorites. It's like asking me to pick my favorite child. Um, I have no one's listening. Who is it? Yeah. <laughs> I only have one. Thank God. <laughs> um, so I think about them actually according to like where we are in the research process. So I have some productivity hacks for the planning stage, for the recruiting stage, for the conducting stage, for analysis and synthesis, presenting, retrospectives, note taking things like that. And these that might actually be a good way to, to move through it. Should we go in sort of a linear fashion or yeah, let's do how it. do you want to, how do you want to run through? Sure. So for planning in the planning stage, I created something called the stakeholder kickoff sheet, right? So my stakeholders, I'm typically asking them the same questions over and over again, right? So why not just have a checkoff list? And I know which ones I need to ask and get some solid answers on first in order to determine if this even is an appropriate project for user research, if it's even answerable, um, if it's ethical, if it's practical, um, what kind of level of confidence they're looking for, um, who wants to know this information, how will the learnings be applied, um, when do they need to make some informed decisions, do they have time to implement on the decisions and things like that. Um, so something like a stakeholder kickoff sheet is super helpful. There's no need to reinvent that wheel over and over. Nice. It sounds like that almost does like a couple things for you. One, right, is like it almost serves as like a checklist. Like you have to fill out these sections. These are important things. So you don't forget them. But then it also just takes the responsibility of having to think about what goes into this type of document because um, it's all kind of set up. Is that is that how you think about it? Exactly. Exactly. And this particular document was created um, to support my students. And then I realized, well, wow, it really supports me and my practice too. So you get the same questions over and over again from aspiring practitioners or practitioners who are newer in the field um, or even, you know, existing practitioners that are looking to just become more efficient and more strategic in their work. Um, 
So lots of these tools came out of need from other people. Some of them came out of my own sort of observation of, of repeating the same tasks over and over again. Another one would be in the recruiting and screening process. So I have templates for solicitations to invite someone to participate um, in take a screener. I have uh, templates for confirmations. Great. You made it. Let's get you scheduled. Templates for now you're scheduled, what to prepare. See you in two hours. If you need to reschedule, if you run into technical problems, <clears throat> no pun there, um, <laughs> who to call to do what, um, and things like that. And these can be customized according to the name of the study, the name of the client, the time, the date, the name of the participant, and things like that. But no need to recreate the wheel every time. Again, looking for ways to reduce my cognitive load. These are sort of repeatable, um, repeatable um, solutions to just increase efficiency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Can I, can I ask a sort of meta question on this before we really get into all the, the tips and tricks? Because I, I have sort of a like love-hate really relationship with like productivity and these things because I, I love them. I take to them. But then I also catch myself sometimes feeling like this is just like a healthy form of procrastination. Like instead of doing the thing, I'm making all the templates or whatever. And so like, how do you advise people to kind of get this right where, you know, you want to see that it's a tedious thing that you do often because that's like where you're going to get the best return from, from you know, finding some of these hacks or these templates. Um, or like a, maybe an adage that I, I've, I've heard in like when you're making physical things and you're trying to buy tools, people will tell you buy cheap tools to start. And then the ones that break or aren't serving your needs are the ones you need to upgrade. Right. But don't don't fixate on getting all the best tools on day one. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you make sure that people don't spend too much time here and are, are not doing research because they're setting up all their systems? Does that make sense? A lot of these things can be, fall into research ops. So if you have a research ops organization, um, mm-hmm. You know, many on the planning recruiting side kind of fall into their domain, and those things will be used with every study. Um, But the way I think about it is um, what tasks am I repeating over and over again, and what questions do I get asked over and over again? And then is there a way to create a streamlined approach for this? So. Right. Yeah. So make sure you have the evidence that this thing is. Yeah. And that by definition is not going to happen in your first 30 days on the job, right? Like you don't know what you're going to get asked over and over again. Exactly. Um, So you can kind of figure some of that out as you go. Cool. And the other thing I imagine is useful here is you're sort of talking about, you know, a specific template to kick off your planning process. But then obviously there are many more kinds of templates you might use throughout your research. Mm -hmm. And you know, we'll link to some of your resources and some of your templates in the in the notes from this episode. Um, but often starting with someone's already done the work for you, start with it, somebody else's template. And then, of course, you can make it your own over time, right? Like what makes sense for the kinds of problems uh, you're facing or that you're getting asked or I wish I'd known this at the beginning of the study that would have saved me a lot of time that might vary you know, from organizations to organizations. So that's really important too. Definitely. So in my, in my corporate workshops, we work to customize all of the templates to meet their needs. So mm-hmm. for example, there's a final presentation checklist, you know, how to prepare for a final presentation, what to share, who to share it with, the length of time you have to present, the type of deliverables, and it goes into archiving, you know, but are you archiving mm-hmm. in Condense? Are you archiving in Dovetail? Are you archiving in Dropbox? How are you archiving? How are you naming your project? Check your file no nomenclature, um, you know, which, which final artifacts to upload and where, who to tag to let them know that it's complete, um, you know, share the completed link to the folder in either a Teams channel or a Slack channel, or we, we customize that. So again, it kind of takes out 
like a lot of the administrative thinking um, so that we can really save that energy for much more of the heady stuff. Uh, anything else in the sort of planning stage that's important to point out in terms of productivity hacks, or should we move on to the, the next stage? Um, I have a plan template and each section of the plan template um, explains what it's used for, why it's important and examples of how it might be completed. So um, for instance, it's, you know, the background to the three sentences overview of why are we doing this research? What are we looking to learn and how will the learnings be applied? And then examples and then research goals or objectives, examples. So I always try to lead by example in terms of um, what does this mean and how does this work? Um, here are some prompts mm -hmm. to help you think about that. Um, and in some cases, here are some prompts to help you um, have this conversation with your stakeholder so that they understand why it's important too. What, um, as you get into like, we've, we've done the templates, we've done the planning, we've kind of kicked it off. Where do you find like, you know, the next batch of, of optimizations come in? Uh, recruiting. Um, so in terms of your recruiting criteria, also identifying your must-have criteria versus your nice-to-have criteria versus I'm willing to loosen this criteria when the recruit gets really tough. Identifying mm -hmm. which criteria you can loosen up front will save you that time when you're in that really stressful place of, I can't find anyone or I can't find enough right. people. So I don't have to go back to my stakeholders, schedule another session and say, look, it's not working or, you know, this is, we're really trying to find a needle in a haystack here. Um, so I like to have those kind of conversations up front too. And then over schedule more than I was going to play this. Yeah. Can I play that one back? Just make sure I'm getting it. Cause I think that's a good one. It's, it's not that you can templatize the criteria because every recruit and projects can be different. It is that when you're agreeing on the criteria, get people to, to include a little bit more specificity so that if you need flex later, you save the time of having to go back to those people. Is that, is that the kind of lesson learned there? Exactly. And it's also educating our stakeholders that, you know, this might not work as planned. I understand this is our goal, but oh, yeah, yeah. you know, we don't work in a black and white universe where, you know, let's plan for the gray space. Yeah. Got it. And then you mentioned also overscheduling. How's that work? Right. So if we're looking for five participants, let's schedule eight um, to accommodate mm -hmm. for no shows, late starts, people that slip through the screener. Um, you can always cancel them if their first five show up and, you know, they're flying colors, um, but always plan for your backups because it's going to happen. You know, especially in COVID, we're seeing much higher no show rates. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious how practically, like, how do we do this in a way that actually saves us time? Because, right, okay, so we want five sessions, and we invited eight, and then we needed one of the extras, but not all three. So now we got to, like, politely let the other two know or, like, get the new one scheduled in the slot. So how do you make overscheduling actually save you time instead of creating more overhead? Uh, so I... Uh, it Let's just say we scheduled eight people um, out of the first five, four show up. I need one extra. I've already got them in my schedule. My mm -hmm. stakeholders already know when all eight sessions are going to take place. Mm -hmm. um, I've already pre-screened mm -hmm. them. Um, I'm going to, once I complete that number five, I'll write a very nice email um, or someone will write a very nice email to the last two participants and say, thank you very much. Um, we have uh, gathered all the feedback um, we're looking for for this study. We'd like to keep you in mind for future studies. Um, would it be okay to reach out to you then? Uh huh. And do you sort of let people know up front that uh, their study like might not happen, or 
it depends. Depends on the type of recruit. Yeah. It depends on the the amount of the incentive. It depends on how closely these things are scheduled. If it's a day or two in advance, mm. um, probably not so much. If it, I try yeah. to have actually like a backup day. Um, mm-hmm. If it's an hour or two, we might pay them the incentive anyway, or a portion of the incentive for uh-huh. reserving the time. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Gotcha. Nice. Cool. Scheduling feels like a broad bucket. Are there other things that when you're trying to do it with collaborators and other stakeholders that that make it easier or save you time? Yeah. So I have a note-taking spreadsheet. And in my note-taking spreadsheet, I have a tab for both my intro um, and then a tab for the questions that I'll ask. And then those are all time-stamped. And I've also identified what are my must-have questions. So if I'm running short on time, I know these are the three or five that I absolutely have to get to. Um, but in addition to that, I have a whole tab for my stakeholders, and that tab includes who the participants are, their key, but uh, P one, P two, not their names, um, when they're scheduled, and what their core screener responses are, so that they can easily make the connection between who we're speaking with and the responses. So, are they a new user? Are they a tenured user? Are they advanced user? I mean according to the recruiting segmentation. And then in there are also direct links to join. We also have like a special sheet that talks about how to be a good observer in a session and what to expect and what not to expect and some mm-hmm. note-taking tools and strategies and things like that. Cool. Yeah. And when you're dealing with a session that has, you've got a lot of stakeholders, like you've got the like moderator, maybe there's an ops person organizing, there's a participant, maybe you've got a note taker. There could be potentially a lot of people involved in any one of these sessions. And so you are being productive, not just to save you time and like the session you're moderating, but also answering all the questions and wrangling all these assets and information for everyone who might be involved. It's mm-hmm. The information you need where you need it and getting that all dialed in ahead of time is going to save everybody a lot of time. So it sort of compounds. Yep. And then everybody learns from their questions too. So again, I see repeatable questions from observers, repeatable questions from stakeholders, repeatable questions from um, practitioners. It's like, hmm, there's a gap here. So how can I address this efficiently and holistically? Um, And I iterate on them. I'm not always the first ones out of the gate are as successful, you know, as they become to be later on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned some somewhere in there about having like the core screening criteria available in that sheet for folks. Mm-hmm. What is, is core? Just is that another way of referring to like the must have screening criteria or the most interesting? How, I, I, this is just kind of a tangent, but I was curious what that means and um, and how you think about it. Yeah, I would uh, core would be basic the basic criteria. We're looking for um, uh, prospects, not customers. We're looking for all US-based participants, um, 18 and older, mix of genders, mix of um, proficiency levels. Uh, But that also might include some exclusion criteria. Um, We're not looking for people who work in organizations with more than 10,000 people. We're not looking for people. Um, And then in my nice to have, it would be, so for example, it would be nice to have people um, who who believe X, Y, or Z, or have the attitudes about one, two, three, or don't, you know, whatever that might be. Um, But my relaxed criteria might be, if we can't find enough in the US, we can expand to Canada, the UK, and Australia, or something like that. Cool. Got it. What about um, anything you do with like, or recommend people do with the 
like calendar events themselves for moderated sessions. There's so many things you can do, right? In terms of like the way you set up the reminders or mm -hmm. you create one event for the participant and one for the stakeholders or put them all in the same one or have the event be public or private or naming conventions. I don't know if you found anything in that uh, world that is useful. All of time. the above, all of the above. Um, first, never schedule more than three or four sessions in a day. Um, again, the cognitive load on that is, is pretty heavy and your own moderator performance will decline just from pure fatigue. You won't be able to remember, um, or decipher, um, one from another after the second session. Anyway, um, always record your sessions. Um, the half an hour in between will allow you to, you know, do your three issues and an um, and kind of get into your headspace of your facilitator groove. Um, and also kind of clear your head of anything that might have happened just before um, or, um, you know, might happen next. Um, I also mm -hmm. say it's really helpful um, to do a pilot at least two days before your actual launch, your sessions. And you're piloting for everything. You're piloting for your, you know, make sure your technology works, your links work, you know, access outside of the organization, different device types. Um, that your question set can fit within the time frame allotted. Now, your next question is probably going to be, who do you pilot with? Um, but let me get to your calendaring invitations. I do set up two separate calendars. I do have a naming convention for the participants, um, and that is shared um, in advance so that we're not um, uh, sacrificing or, you know, uh, determining what's the word I'm looking for. Um, opening up the door for any sort of PII issues. Um, gotcha. And uh, the team, the internal stakeholders get one invitation and then the participant gets another invitation. And it's only the facilitator and the participant who are on their invitation. Otherwise, I think it could be very intimidating. Mm -hmm. cool. mm -hmm. And so on the PII note, because I know this is top of mind for a lot of people these days, right? And so it's, Right. PII, we want to be careful about who has access to it and like a need to know basis. And it's not an all or nothing thing. There are many right different emails, phone numbers, then social security numbers, right? You get into really heavy stuff. So, okay. So any tips in terms of how you streamline who actually can access what PII and what stage of the research? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm creating that sheet again for the participant mm -hmm. details and I'm only including the screener responses that are pertinent to the study. Um, so mm -hmm. I'm not including age. You know, the criteria was over 18 or between 18 and 40. If they fit that criteria, mm -hmm. I'm going to take it out unless it's totally pertinent to the study. And I've also removed mm -hmm. all of their names. So in the initial note taking, it will, it will say P1, Joe, P2, Maria, P3. And then I'm going to remove all of those individual names. Uh, and then depending upon what organization I'm working with, because every organization has their own approach, um, I may mm -hmm. or may not be uploading or archiving that information, like what level of information we're actually archiving really differs. Mm -hmm. Are there, you know, are there ways to make that less burdensome um, on yourself? Cause like I, I know in my experience, redacting PII and, even once you know how to do it, it can sometimes just be time consuming. And mm -hmm. have you found ways to kind of just make that simpler, you know, how you're dropping the names or, or things like that? Um, I haven't. Maybe that's a good idea for 
Um, yeah, one of the listeners will. This is an example, though, where I'm not quite sure that's repeatable um, because oh, every study might be different. So, age specific age might not be, you know, important in this study, but it might be really important in the next study. I'd have to think mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, let's see, you talked about archiving and sort of, you know, you've done some research, you've, you know, made it, you've got some backups in case people don't show up, you've got your note-taking grid, things like that. Uh, we've got to do something with these insights, with these raw assets and materials. So mm-hmm. any tips on uh, saving some time with some re- repeatable tasks on that side of the, the stage? Yeah. Um, so specific file naming conventions, super important. If you're my client... Um, I might come up with a file naming convention, um, let's call it awkward silences or AS underscore, um, discovery underscore Q122 underscore, um, concept testing. But I could, I know very quickly when I'm looking at the assets, all of them start that same way. And then maybe I have concept test screener discussion guide. But having that really clear file um, naming system set up in advance will really help organize the files and make the archiving process much better. I'd also say um, question banks. So developing question banks for screeners and question banks for discussion guides are really helpful. I've done that for a number of clients, um, like in their platforms and ad hoc. So this removes the load of asking that same question, you know, and figuring out how to phrase that for each line of business over and over again, or, you know, each, um, maybe archetype, things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the file one is interesting because it feels like one of the first ones we've talked about where it's probably actually a little bit more work for you right now, maybe an extra minute or two, but it probably saves you like a half hour, an hour of work later when you're trying to find some important asset. Is that is that kind of the dynamic on that one? Yeah. And then I could just do a quick search on the umbrella name if I'm not looking for it. Or if I've used it consistently or my students have used it consistently or my team or whoever, um, I know what that file name should be because I created that mm-hmm. nomenclature system. So I could look up a, S, I forget what we said, awkward silences, uh, concept, uh, testing, screener. Right. Gotcha. Cool. And we put these, are these all in like a folder as well? Or where are these files live? Is there another yeah. kind of like wrapper for everything? Yeah. So um, some clients have them on Google Drive. Some clients have them in Dropbox. Some files have them in uh, SharePoint. I always try to acquiesce mm-hmm. to whatever's going to be most culturally relevant for the teams. And have you solved the final, no, really final Almost final. V three final yeah. <laughs> issue. <laughs> Are these all uh, editable, you know, documents that uh, where the version control isn't an issue? Yeah, yeah, I definitely prefer the G Suite over the Microsoft <laughs> Suite um, for that reason alone. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I think that's really cultural too. Whether they save the versions, I think you know, final, final, mm-hmm. final V two, final, final V two, final. Um, <clears throat> but in what I'm, I'm finally archiving in the end, sometimes it's important to keep those iterations. Sometimes it's not. <laughs> right, right, right. I'd be a millionaire if I could solve that one. <laughs> is um a, a kind of broader question on something like this is, 
is this something that if I'm trying to bring it to my team, I'm like, hey, I've thought about it. And a thing I've seen over the last quarter or two is we can never find our files or things from previous research. And here's a solution. Let's use this convention. Let's use this folder structure or whatever, right? Does it need to kind of come in like that? Or can you do it more bottoms up of I'm doing research right now and I want to try something new. And on my project, I'm going to be really organized with the, these file names and everything else. And then I'll see if people want to adopt it. Because like, I'm just imagining like some of these are really straightforward. Imagine how you'd maybe put them into your workflow of like, oh, okay, I just made this template a couple of times. I'll break it off and share it with people. This one feels a little bit different. Do you try to do it as like a team-wide thing? Or can you start it as a one-off and see if people adopt it? Um, I've seen it both ways. Um, I In my cohorts, I do it top down um, and I pre-label all of their tools and templates for them. Um, first name, mm-hmm. underscore CT, underscore cohort name, underscore name of thing. Um, plan template, screener template, discussion guide template, you know, what, what that thing is. Um, and then it's, it's pre-named. Um, but I've also um, trained researchers who are implementing this just for their own workflow and then um, research ops who implement it, you know, from the top down. So I say start wherever you can. I know one thing that you focused on is uh, reducing fraudulent participants, which is, you know, an unfortunate reality that can happen. Something, you know, we've spent a lot of time uh, keeping off of our platform, but what are your tips for uh, avoiding that unpleasant waste of time, right? We're talking about productivity. How do you, how do you save time on fraudulent participants? Yeah, gee, that's getting harder. I just had one last week. Um, uh, getting LinkedIn addresses and verifying those addresses through the LinkedIn platform is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, looking up for you know your spidey senses, the participant that I was meeting with on Friday said he was in New York City. It was 11 a.m. in California, uh, 8 a.m. in California, 11 a.m. in New York. It was pitch blackout. I was like, hmm, do you have any windows in your room? Um, he had a very thick accent. He, um, uh, I could tell he was not a native, um, English speaker. Um, I asked him, um, one best practice is to reconfirm the must have criteria, um, and check for the same responses. That's a good one. If you, if, if you're in that call, so the call, you're in the first five minutes of the call, getting some flags, you do this um, criteria check, clearly something's off. Will you just, will you just let the person go right then just to get the time back? Or, or how do you, how do you unwind that situation? Yeah, I can tell pretty quickly. Um, this participant also called in from a mobile device and uh, he needed to participate from a desktop. So when he was switching from mobile to desktop, um, I sent him a quick email Um and that email was open three times in about 10 seconds. Um, so that like sends a little, um, there's a little anxiety there. Um, and I would just say, I'm sorry, I don't think that we're going to be able to continue this session today. There's some certain requirements to participate. Screen sharing from desktop is one of them. Um, thank you very much for your time. If I don't think they're fraudulent and they're not prepared, um, I might ask them to reschedule. I might, you know, walk them through, you know, the the tech setup if if those are the issues. Um, but for pro- fraudulent participants, I want to let them go within the first five minutes. I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to waste mm-hmm. their time. Um, checking that must have criteria up front is is really important. And their surroundings. Any tips on that tech setup? 
Say it again. Yeah. Any any tips on the tech setup side? I know that, you know, a couple years ago, not every participant had Zoom downloaded yet, but now there's it's much more prevalent, obviously. But any tips in terms of making sure your participants are prepared so that you don't have to reschedule and can kind of mm-hmm. uh, get off on the right foot from the beginning? Clarifying what it, they should do before the session. So I have a session coming up right at 11 a.m. And these sessions need to take place on Chrome uh, via a desktop. So reminding them in advance, please um, join the Zoom from a desktop and have Chrome downloaded and ready to go. There's going to be people where who don't you, ring it. Maybe advise. Right, right. Where would you advise someone to like make the call on whether the session could be like salvageable or not? Right. So you booked 45 minutes. You think you have 30, 35 minutes of like, you know, really important questions to get through. The first five or 10 minutes getting getting lost to, you know, oh, I got to switch to my desktop or this and that. Like at some point, do you let the person go then too? Or do you know, like, well, we have a little buffer and I can still get through the core stuff. So, so let's make it work. Like how, what kind of judgment would you recommend there? I think it depends on the participant in the study. It depends on how hard the recruit is, how badly I need them. Um, mm, that's fair. It, uh, not, it not, uh, there's a lot of gray area, gray area there. Um, yeah. So if you're, yeah. So, I was gonna say, so it sounds like the, the maybe the rule of thumb is the harder it is to find participants for the thing you're doing. Maybe you have a little bit more wiggle or, or flex on some tech hiccups. But if you're if you're bountiful with qualified participants, maybe be a little stricter and, and save your own time. Yeah, yep, that's a good rule of thumb. And also make sure you have those thirty minutes of buffer time in between because that will allow you to accommodate for late starts and hiccups and things like that, as well as you know debrief right after. But those thirty minutes of buffer time in between are really important. They're good CYA measures. Yeah, uh, about uh, recruiting participants a lot, which is obviously something we think about a lot. What about if you're trying to get ahead of things, right, and build your own pool of participants? Uh, any tips there in terms of mm-hmm. making that process efficient? Question banks. Question banks um, are super, super helpful because um, we're generally posing similar questions, albeit with some specific nuances, like who blank, what does blank mean? What motivates you to blank? Um, where does blank come into play? When does blank occur? Um, why, where, how are typical questions or typical probes? Um, so by building out these question banks for clients, they're, they're able to just kind of fill in the blanks, so to speak, um, because these are, they're repeatable, they're scrubbed for biases, um, uh, and preloading them into your platforms too, so that you can kind of copy and paste them and then organizing them. The, the one that I just built also was organized by phase in the research process. So we have a whole question bank for warmups. We have a whole uh, question bank for digging deeper. We have a whole kind of question bank for usability tasks um, and scenarios already set up. Whole question bank for wrap ups and reflection type of questions, and then qual versus um, quant. You know, so you can look at this table of questions in a variety of different ways. And the, and the idea is that you've had different people answer those questions over time, and so like in the future, you go back to the pool. That like, oh, I need somebody who said their favorite color is red. And I know I have from this question bank, a bunch of people have already answered this. Is, is that kind of the, the next step here? Or, or how do you yeah pull it into the recruiting or like the participant side of things? I think it depends on how 
how we're segmenting the participant pool. Are we segmenting them in terms of tenure, proficiency, attitude? Um, and then we would build in, you know, some specific questions. Keeping a pool hot, though, takes a lot of work and making sure that, you know, we have the do not call, you know, more than every 90 days or 120 days is important too. But in terms of segmenting specifically, um, you know, I, I think that's going to depend on what, what the criteria is for one segment versus another in, in the participant pool. Sure. That's fair. Panel uh, nurturing is something that I'm actually going to be thinking about over the next couple of months. So if anyone listening to this has opinions, reach out to me. I'd love to <laughs> chat to you as an aside. Um, I have a, a bit of a meta question again. Um, I feel like one thing you always see in productivity stuff is people get really fixated on the efficiency side of things. Like, how can I do this task faster? And I think there's kind of like a broader philosophy that is there's nothing worse than efficiently doing something that doesn't need to be done. So, like, are there things that you recommend researchers are maybe spending time on that they could just like drop entirely? Or, or how to find those things in their stack? Because I'd imagine over time, this process gets more and more involved and there's more and more stuff going on. Like, how can people maybe reevaluate steps they, steps they could skip or that kind of stuff? I don't necessarily think about it as I think about I think about these things as working smarter, not harder. Um, most of these things you're doing anyway, you're planning anyway, you're recruit or you should be you're recruiting anyway, you know, you're screening anyway. Um, so they're not like uh, make work, so to speak. It's more sure. about let's do the work needed as efficiently as possible. Um, what do I see that's, that are time wasters? Um, uh, not being able to find the files you want, <laughs> not being able to, um, you know, uh, not documenting a change that was agreed upon, um, not understanding which criteria could be loosened before you start the recruiting process. Um, not confirming the must-have questions and realizing 40 minutes into the session that your participant isn't qualified or um, fell into the you know wrong segment. Um, not building into your discussion guide like timestamps and must-have questions, and following your guide you know top to bottom regardless of your start time. Another one is timestamps, right? You always want to start your timestamps at zero zero, not at uh, zero thirty. If you if your session starts at at thirty minutes after the hour, because that will just f you up. <laughs> You'll always be trying to do the math in your head about you know seventeen minutes in. Okay, that was point. That was you know colon four seven. Like you, you just don't do that. Just always timestamp from zero zero. Too. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. What about on the opposite side of things? Right. Like in theory, what we're doing is we're trying to save time, save cognitive energy for this other stuff we need it for. So what is that stuff we need it for? Where should we not worry about efficiency or this is just going to take time. This needs your human attention every time, like it's the first time. Forget about hacks. Just spend your time and energy there. What are those things? Being present, you know, being present for your stakeholders, making sure your stakeholders really feel like you hear them. And, and demonstrating you hear them. And I think being present for your participants, there's no substitute, you know, for being 100% present. So I made that joke, like the 30 minutes will give you time to do your three issues in an um kind of thing, but that's super important. 
you really want to, you want to be present. I mean, you have a lot going on when you're running a session, right? You have your participant who you want to make feel like a million bucks. You've got your guide over here and you're jumping around. And then maybe you have your stakeholders on a Slack channel that are like, dig deeper into that. How do they spell that? You know, find out where they got that. How long have they had that? And, and life, right? There's the garbage truck behind me. I could get the call to pick up my kid at camp because of a COVID exposure. Like there's just a lot going on. So I would say, save that time to be present, you know, with those two core audiences who I think are my, my users, right? I always have two sets of users, the people who need to consume my research and the people we're designing for. And then um, throughout the analysis and synthesis stage and the presenting stage, it's like that. What do I need to be present for? And what sort of a repeatable administrative task? Yeah, no, I think that, that that's a fair way of thinking about it, right? Because I feel like one thing we hear a lot from researchers or anybody, I guess, in you know product development land is just uh, often feeling a little bit of overwhelm and there's kind of too much to juggle. So if you're able to get some time back in, in other areas, you don't need to immediately fill it with new stuff. You can use that space to, to breathe and, and you know. Yeah, the context the switching. Well. I'm trying to minimize the context switching. It's, it's a lot of context switching. So if I can, if I can remove those um, kind of challenges and, and just make it easier. So I don't have to think about everything. Not everything really needs the same amount of thought. Some things need yeah. no more. Thought. What do you, what do you think these kind of add up to in terms of like time saved? Like, so obviously this is gonna be very imprecise and like pseudoscience, but just if you had to guess, right? Like, uh, a scale of one to a hundred, you're doing it all from scratch the first time and it's a hundred, it takes you forever. Like what percentage of that time could you save when you really have this streamlined and dialed in like, like you have over the years? You know, when I, when I launch this, I'm going to ask people to track that. Uh, so I want to bundle these and then uh, launch it together. Um, you know, it's really hard to say because you're not going to get it right the first time out of the gate. You know, just start with something sure, and yeah, iterate. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I would say uh, that measurement um, first of all, you need to establish a baseline, um, but that in and of itself would be a great study. Hours, though. Oh yeah, to start by like where where are we spending our time in these research projects, and where do we think we could compress? Maybe is a good starting point. Yeah, I, but definitely hours. I mean, if you think about it, you could you know belly gaze on a screener for a you know a day or two, um, but if you had a screener bank of questions, I mean that would jumpstart your process significantly. Yeah, I think where are we spending the most time and where are we the most miserable, right? Because it's not just the not just the time you're spending, but where are you spending it and it's draining your energy and, you know, your love of the craft or whatever it is. Those are also things you want to maybe try to find ways to not do or at least do quicker. I think the two biggest pain points certainly in research ops are at the beginning and the end of the process also. So, yep. again, I would look inside and... That Ian, Aaron, you just said that in a really nice way. And note-taking templates and frameworks are also significantly expedite your analysis and synthesis when you're determining upfront what you're taking notes on and how you're taking those notes. Are you taking them according to heuristic and by participant and then, you know, cutting it by segment? Are you taking notes on um, direct quotes or data to triangulate? Um, and how are you marking those? Well, will really, really help too. One last one. How, do you think people should be thinking more about like the duration and number of sessions as a way to get time back? Like I think a lot of people default to round numbers, right? 30 minutes or 60 minutes, but maybe you should be doing 45 minute sessions and you could be saving 15 minutes a pop or 
maybe your team likes to talk to seven or eight people and you could actually be fine with five or six. And that's like a few hours right there. Or do you, any, any time stuff there that people should be mindful of? I'd say when you're, you know, when, when you see some really clear patterns and you're confident in the patterns you see, um, if you have a lot of, you know, other people scheduled, you know, think really hard about whether that's a good use, not only of your time, but of your stakeholders time and of those participants time. Not all data is helpful. Not, all, it's not the quantity of the data, you know, it's the quality of the data. Maybe it would be helpful to just pause for two or three days, think if you want to pivot and then, um, you know, gain some, some uh, d- dig in deeper on, on something that you've already learned from the clear patterns, you know, um, or let them go. You know, no one likes to waste time. Just imagining that lucky last participant, you're like, I've heard enough done. (laughs) No more participants. It all makes sense. But yeah, I think that's a great one. Uh, No need to stick to the plan, whether, you know, right. The plan might be sometimes you need to add more participants. So that's not going to help us save time. And plans uh, change, right? It can cut both ways. Absolutely. And the plans change and plans are what we do is iterative. Nothing about user research is static, right? It's so dynamic. Our, our roadmaps change, our political climate changes, our, um, you know, we're having rolling blackouts and those change our schedules and um, our competition changes. Um, and just to, you know, revisit that approach over and over and keep in constant contact with your stakeholders to find out, has anything changed? Do we want to rethink anything? Michelle, thanks for joining us again. It's great to have you and uh, look forward to connecting another time sometime as well. Thanks for sharing all your great tips. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great to see you.